Welcome back to Pipe Bets and Politics. We are um, really excited to be back recording, uh, back in our quote-unquote studio uh, in a storage room here at ASPMB's headquarters. Um, as always, uh, I am Ben Corb, the Public Affairs Director for ASPMB, and I am joined by my team, Andre Porter. Hey, how you doing? And Daniel Pham. Hey, everyone. To get uh, out of the way at the beginning, I wanted to go over just our Twitter handles, so if you hear something we say that's interesting or you want to engage with us on social media, I am at BW Corb. Andre is... At AM Porter underscore. And Daniel is... DFAM20. Um, and ASBNB is at ASBNB. So those are some great places to connect with us, and you can use the hashtag Pipettes and Politics. Today what we wanted to do is talk about some of the news items that are happening. So we're not going to have a guest or a deep dive, but we're going to cover um, the variety, kind of the landscape of, of issues that we're dealing with and kind of negotiating right now. So the, the first thing we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about appropriations. How are our funding agencies, how are our science funding agencies um, going to be proposed to be funded for the next fiscal year, starting on September 1st? So we'll dive a little bit into that. We will also talk about ASBNB's response to the National Science Foundation's request for comments on changes to their sexual harassment reporting policies. We will also talk about NIH and the Next Generation Researcher Initiative and where that is, and some of the interesting recommendations that ASBNB provided to the working group there at the NIH. Um, and also, finally, we'll be talking about the National Academy of Sciences, which recently put out a report on the future of the biomedical research workforce. Um, it's work similar to the work that ASBMB did a couple years ago on sustaining the biomedical research enterprise. And so we'll talk about where it's similar and where that's interesting and um, where maybe it's not so interesting. So that's the, the idea for today. The first thing I'd like to do is we'd like to talk about appropriations. Um, so. Big picture, uh, the appropriation season begins now in earnest, um, where the appropriations committees and their various subcommittees will begin developing, drafting, holding hearings, um, providing and voting on bills that will fund the federal government for the next fiscal year. There are 12 appropriations bills that go through the process. Um, the three that we really tend to pay a lot of attention to is the Labor, Health, and Human Services Appropriations Budget, which is where the NIH is funded, uh, the Commerce, Science, and Justice Appropriations, which is where the National Science Foundation is, and Energy and Water, which is where the Department of Energy Office of Science is found. And those are the agencies that we focus more of our attention on. There are other agencies that have finance, have some research, the Department of Defense has uh, a research portfolio, the Department of Veterans Affairs has a research portfolio, but this is where we spend the majority of our time. So I'm going to go over to Andre and say, Andre, can you give us an update on kind of where things are right now, and then we'll talk about where what things are scheduled to happen, and we'll do a little prognostication about where we think things will go. Sure. So <clears throat> uh, to date, the House has put forward uh, two appropriate, so you mentioned the CJS and the energy and water. CJS have sent out their markup for their um, their bills. The House CJS subcommittee has put out their markup for NSF, as well as the energy and water has put, out, put forward a markup for DOE. Both uh, bills propose an increase in funding for NSF and uh, DOE's Office of Science. So last year, or for FY18, NSF and Office of Science saw an increase for FY19, there is a proposed increase as well coming from the House. So 
the NSF will be funded or will be proposed to be funded at $8.2 billion, which is $408 million above uh, what it was appropriated for FY18. And the Office of Science at DOE is looking at a, a $6.6 billion or $340 million above FY18. Uh, we haven't seen HHS numbers come out yet. They are holding an, a hearing um, this week and then likely we'll see a markup coming uh, shortly after. And this is for the House. For the House. And the Senate, I believe, already held their... Um, I, I believe the Senate already held their uh, NIH appropriations hearing. Is that true? They're hearing, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, but they haven't drafted a bill yet. They haven't drafted uh, a bill. The Senate schedule for drafting bills is, is basically June. The second, third, and four, fourth weeks of June right. is, I think, when they're going to be getting at it. Um, CJS and Energy and Water earlier in that time window, Labor H tends to be at the end of these processes, and that's because politically the Labor H bill is charged with a lot of different things. Um, the NIH is not a very, it's a very supported bipartisan thing, but there's a lot of controversial provisions in the Labor Health and Human Services bill because there's a lot of social um, safety net programs that are favorable from one party and less favorable from another. So it ends up being a more contentious kind of markup and process than the others do. Um, so that's where we are. Right. Um, and where we're going, right? So we're watching, we're going to be watching the hearing and see what uh, NIH Director Dr. Francis Collins says, which is going to be, of course, really flowery, positive things about the NIH. He's a great salesman he in these hearings, um, talking about the work that the NIH is doing and what these increases in funding will do. Um, and hopefully we'll end up with a positive mark there. Um, the question will become kind of how this all proceeds, right, as we move through the summer recess in Congress election season and what all of that will mean for the appropriations process. So um, just a, a quick kind of look into the crystal ball, which doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> first of all, I think a continuing, uh, I imagine, as you said, Andre, I agree with you that the NIH is likely to see another increase, another proposed increase. Um, probably in the area of one to three billion dollars, as they have seen for the past several years. Um, we have seen some really uh, important people in the process saying things like this. Um, Senator Roy Blunt, who's the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Congressman Tom Cole, who is uh, the chair of the House Labor HHS Appropriations Subcommittee, have both said that a $3 billion increase is in the air, quote-unquote. Um, and um, I think it was uh, Nita Lowy who is um, the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee also said similar things. So both Republicans and Democrats are saying, sounds like the bill is gonna be a good thing. The questions all become in the process, and we, we've, we've seen this before. Um, it's an election year, so the congressional calendar is truncated to allow members of Congress to go back, you know, all of the House is up for re-election, and the third of the Senate is up for re-election in November. So October is a light, uh, a light month for legislating. Uh, there's the summer recess in August. So, and history has shown that in election years, continuing resolutions tend to be um, the way of the way that things will go, particularly for the first three months of the fiscal year. Uh, particularly when an election like this one is here, where there's the potential for a change in power in one of the chambers or both of the chambers. Um, so, you know. Increases are likely, and increases are in the air, and the political will to have an increase seems to exist. Will the process 
get in the way of that ends up being the question. Especially if one of the chambers flip. I think that historically you get less support in the sciences if there's a difference in party between the chambers and the president. So if something like that does happen, you know, the NIH might be in the crosshairs once again. The NIH maybe maybe not as large of an increase. Um, <clears throat> Democrats, gener- and this is a very drastic generalization, but they generally are more supportive of, or seen as being more supportive of science. So the CJS increase or the energy and water increase may may be similar, um, but we also have an inflated budget that is constantly contributing to the debt, and somebody will have to tackle that. So if chamber changes, then that may be a point of contention on we can't just keep these increases into perpetuity. I don't know. Uh, conversely, the reason for our, uh, the continuing resolution may be that the changer, the chamber flips and the party that is in the minority and is about to become in the majority will want to be in the majority to make the final decision for how to handle this fiscal year. Take so credit. you may, you know, if you're um, a Democrat and you have seen modest increases in programs that you care about, but you're about to take control of the House, you may want to... CR until the next Congress is seated in January and then get more than a modest increase in the program mm-hmm. because you're now the party in charge. So, right. you know, it, it goes both ways. Uh, you know, there is plenty of historical data that shows that in election years, by and large, we have longer continuing resolutions. It's just the way that it works. And so we'll be monitoring it. Um, you can check out our blog, policy.asbnb.org, um, throughout the next weeks and months to see what's happening. Um, but that's a space that, uh, that we're going to be focusing our attention on, and we think it's important that you do as well. So that covers uh, about the appropriations process. Um, I think uh, now is a good time to take a little bit of a break, take a step back. We can catch our breath. Um, On the other side of this break, we're going to jump in and talk about the um, Sexual Harassment Reporting at National Science Foundation, the NGRI at the NIH, and the National Academies report on uh, the future workforce for the biomedical research enterprise. This is Pipettes in Politics, and we will be right back. Like this but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. Uh, as always, this is Ben Korb. This is Andre Porter. Daniel Pham here. Great, and uh, thank you for sticking with us. Um, in the last segment, we talked about what Congress is doing and focusing on. Let's talk a little bit about what the agencies are doing. So first, Daniel, um, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about the National Science Foundation has recently issued some proposed changes to their sexual harassment policy reporting requirements. So I'm going to throw it over. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, yeah, so in light of the, the Me Too movement and all of the new allegations that are, and old allegations reported um, by scientists of sexual um, misconduct by famous scientists, Tom Jessel and Dur Verma, um, the NSF has been 
moving to propose um, stricter requirements to um, help get rid of sexual um, misconduct in the environment in the um, scientific workplace. So they just uh, proposed a new reporting requirement called um, Proposed Article X that um, requires awardee organizations to report findings and determinations of um, sexual harassment um, by scientists. Um, and they also are able to now make unilateral decisions to um, remove PIs or co-PIs that have been um, found guilty of uh, sexual misconduct, um, and they can remove them from awards. Uh, so this allows the NSF to take more power. Um, this allows the NIH has the, uh, the, the National Science Foundation oh. has the ability to um, really control and ensure that the, fun the people that they are funding um, in addition to doing good science, are being good scientists and are being appropriate in the lab setting, um, trying to foster an environment of openness and inclusion and equality um, in labs that exists in many labs, um, but that, you know, there have been enough reports of problems of inequality and of harassment and of misconduct um, that would cause a federal agency to kind of pause and want to make sure that the dollars that they're investing in a scientist are invested in the right people and not in people that are doing some kind of really horrific and, and just inappropriate things with that with that funding in their lab. Right. And so they, um, so the ASPMB has um, submitted recommendations to the NSF um, to recommend that the NSF work with universities and institutions to establish a standard method of investigating sexual misconduct claims, uh, that the NSF ensure that the reporting processes will protect the privacy of those that are reporting sexual misconduct, and that the NSF also publicize its action plan in response to uh, a variety of sexual harassment and misconduct behaviors uh, to ensure transparency and consistency. And you can find the full list of our recommendations on our blog, policy.aspmb.org. That's great. Thank you. Uh, it's a really important topic, and we're, um, I'm really proud that the society um, saw it as an important, co uh, important topic to discuss, um, put the effort and energy into developing some recommendations, um, and, and submitted them. And like, like Daniel said, they're available for you to review and comment on as well. So we're, we're really happy about that. So thank you. Um, we hope that the National Institutes of Health will go through a similar process. Um, it doesn't appear, at least right now, that that's in the works. However, we will continue to monitor, and certainly when and if they develop a program like this as well, we will be there uh, in the front of the line commenting and uh, supporting um, policies and procedures that will ensure that the science environment that people work on is, is um, not hostile, um, ha uh, supports equality and diversity, and is just a, the right place uh, to be doing your work. So thank you. Important topic. Andre, um, let's talk a little bit about the NIH and the Next Generation Research Initiative. What's happening there? What's ASBMB done? Where are things going? So the NIH is currently drafting a new policy. And I say new because it's new now and they've tried a number of times um, to support the next generation of researchers. Um, in June, in July, excuse me, the advisory committee committee to the director's next generation of researchers initiative working group, it's a mouthful, uh, will be putting out uh, their drafts, so their first draft recommendations 
uh, for NIH to adopt. The SBNB, as we do in the, these spaces, we have we have uh, interfaced with NIH and submitted some changes or some suggestions to these this policy as it's being developed because there is no uh, policy as it is uh, as it stands today. Uh, generally, our recommendations are around establishing um, policies to promote reentry of scientists, also establishing an, uh, a program that helps retain at-risk researchers. And we've we'll, we'll also tried to push NIH to be more um, prescriptive for who early stage investigators are. And you can read the full list of what our recommendations are on the policy blog as well as on asbnb.org uh, backslash advocacy. As in all of our policy statements and letters are, are hosted there. And I think that let's just talk a little bit about the, you know, the problem that they're trying to solve is um, the NIH has instituted policies which support uh, ESIs, early stage investigators, particularly those that are getting their very first NIH grant. And so they have done what would seem to be um, really good work to level the playing field so that a first time awardee um, is as likely to get funded as a senior investigator at the NIH is. The success rates are comparable, if not slightly better, to get your first award. The problem that we've identified, that the NIH has identified, is what happens when, after you've gotten your first award and you're going for your, your either a renewal of your grant or your second award. And that's kind of what, we're, what we've seen is kind of this valley where we're starting to see a dip in success rates, which is... Uh, you know, once you are an established investigator, you tend to be doing okay. When you're an early, brand new investigator, there are programs in place that help to support you. But when you're a mid-career scientist, there's no extra bit of support. It's a lot of work and a lot of pressure. And we're hopeful that the NIH will help to institute some policies to support that group. Is that fair? That's fair. This is this has been going on for over a year. So earlier last year, it was a grant support index that kind of crashed and burned. Uh, we were a part of that as well. Um, then we were not, we were not, not, not a part of that crashing. And not burning. a part of crash because we, we we provided very specific recommendations, right? Um, in support of and in opposition to some of the proposals inside of the grant support index, and those are available on our blog. Right, and I think what was important about the grant support index, even though it failed, was that it was a attempt to right the ship. It was not going to be comfortable for everybody, but it was going to be beneficial for the community as a whole. There was a lot of opposition to it from certain a certain part of the community. It died, and then they instituted the NGRI, the Next Generation of Research Initiative, put out a policy recommendation then uh, towards the summer of last year, and then they drew that all the way back and decided to start from scratch. So there was a lot of opposition to the GSI from senior investigators. You'll say it. Yeah, you can who, say they, it. I'll say it. Um, <laughs> who the GSI proposal would probably most impact is investigators that have multi-grants or lots of money that they've received from the NIH, right. um, you know, who are doing well. Um, and I think what the NIH was trying to do a little bit was propose some caps on how much money you can get or how many grants you can have in order to help democratize the funding to make sure it's not just a few scientists getting a lot of the money, but open up funds for people throughout different stages in their career. Right. Unfortunately, senior scientists are also the leaders in the community, which is not, you know, uncommon, right? It's why retirees and the AARP has a lot of influence over the political process. Um, you know, so those senior scientists who would be most 
potentially negatively impact were also the people who have the most influence in the process because they have kind of the ear of leadership. Um, and so that was a perfect storm that resulted in kind of the NIH abandoning the GSI program um, and then going forward with a, a new program that we're in the midst of. So it's not even a new program, which I think is one of my gripes, is that it's not a policy that is that is mandatory for institutes. It is right now being developed as a recommendation, which I think is, if it's a recommendation, people have the option to opt out of it, and that creates inequities across institutes. It creates this, uh, this issue where there is no accountability for NIH to really implement it. And I think, and we're pushing this um, as ASBNB for the NIH to make it mandatory as well as make it ubiquitous across all the institutes because what's the purpose of this recommendation if nobody's going to use it or has to use it? Right. And, and we're pretty happy. You know, look, we put a lot of work and effort and energy into our recommendations. Um, we asked the NIH for a lot of data to help us to support some of the ideas right. that we had. We weren't able to get the data that we were looking for, and that's an issue we're going to continue to discuss with the NIH. But we've submitted these recommendations not only to the um, advisory committee to the director's working group on the Next Generation Research Initiative, but we also submitted it to the leadership at the NIH and every institute director at the NIH so that they can see we're out there, we're thinking about things, and we have recommendations. You can see those recommendations on our policy blog um, and also on this uh, the blog, which um, this podcast is linked to. We'll have a hyperlink to our recommendations so you can see them there. Um, and we really encourage you to kind of comment back to us on, on Twitter, um, at BWCorb, at ANPorter underscore, at DFAM, at ASBNB, using hashtag politics. I think would be a great way to continue the conversation. And we'll also be monitoring the ACD for when their, rec their draft recommendations do come out. We're going to develop a um, response mechanism for to distribute the recommendations to our membership and our listeners here, um, but also to be able to collect comments from our membership and our listeners that we can then package and deliver to the NIH on behalf of ASBNB um, about what the community thinks. So any other things to wrap up that? No. No. Great. Um, and then the final thing that we wanted to dive into is the National Academies. Um, the National Academy of Sciences put out um, a report, uh, I guess it was February, uh, I'm sorry, April the 12th. Um, and their issue um, was focusing on the next generation researchers. They put out a lot of recommendations on how to support uh, next generation scientists, how to support the workforce into the future. So uh, let's go through very quickly. Um, they had recommendations for Congress, they had recommendations for the NIH specifically, and they had recommendations for research institutions. So I'm just going to blast through these real quick. Um, for Congress, they wanted Congress to establish a Biomedical Research Enterprise Council, um, which would be a public-private partnership of stakeholders to provide and collect guardianship. Uh, they would have guardianship over the Biomedical Research Enterprise and be there to actively address challenges and things that are coming up, um, as opposed to being so responsive to crises develop a program of people that are in place that can help to drive policies and make changes going forward. Um, they would also consider an, uh, increasing the NIH's budget to help implement recommendations that are in this report. And that would be to provide funding in addition to research funding, so not have new NIH research dollars be taken up to support this, but rather um, 
supplement research funding with extra dollars to implement some of the recommendations in this report um, and to work with the NIH to promote uh, innovative pilot projects um, on part of on the part of research institutions and other stakeholders that seek to improve and accelerate transitions into independent careers. So if you are a scientist and academia isn't your future or isn't the right way to go, how can the NIH help really uh, be innovative in providing you with your next generation, your next job and the career path that you're looking for? Uh, the report's recommendations for the NIH specifically um, expand existing awards or create new competitive awards for post uh, for postdoctoral researchers to advance their own independent research and support professional development toward independent research career. So that's one recommendation. Um, ensure that the duration of all R01 research grants supporting early stage investigators is no less than five years to enable the establishment of resilient independent research programs and to phase in a cap, they suggest three years, on salary support for all postdocs um, in, in the NIH. <clears throat> um, the phase-in should occur only after the NIH undertakes a robust pilot study of the sufficient size, how many postdocs we really need, and what their funding level should be. And the idea is to help to eliminate kind of the career postdoc uh, aspect of things. Um, <clears throat> For institutions, for research institutions, for your universities, collect and analyze uh, and uh, disseminate comprehensive data on outcomes where people are, who is in the workforce, where they're going um, with their degrees, how long it took. Like really, the um, you know, <clears throat> I think of groups like uh, Future of Research. Um, I think of groups like uh, Rescuing Biomedical Research that are they're doing a lot of work on this. Um, the, these are some. Um, these are some recommendations that I think would support those efforts that are ongoing and friends of ASBNB are, are helping to push that along. Um, they believe that research institutions should introduce a mechanism to facilitate career guidance, um, to provide evidence to the NIH of formal training of faculty mentors and postdoc uh, post trainees, um, you know, help, help, the universe, help the universities prove to the NIH that they're actually becoming better mentors and better trainees, um, promote diversity. Um, work with the NIH to increase the number of individual staff scientists, and that's actually one of the things you um, we talked about. ASBNB spent a lot of time and effort a few years ago on their Sabre initiative, sustaining the biomedical research enterprise, and a lot of the recommendations that we had inside of that effort, which is available online, and you, we'll have a link to it in our blog associated with this podcast. Um, a lot of those recommendations that we identified several years ago have been kind of echoed here in this report. So on the plus side, good on us for having been uh, on the right track and identifying some of the areas that really need some attention and some focus within the research community and, and a place that we should be focusing our efforts and energies. And so we're really happy about that. A little bit of the frustration, I think, is that our SABRE initiative, which we, we held a summit. Uh, we published a paper in PNAS. Um, our research on, on that effort was founded on 20 years of previous papers and recommendations from the biomedical research community on the steps that are needed to sustain the biomedical research enterprise. Here is another multi-million dollar, multi-year long effort to provide more of the same recommendations again. And so I think critics of this effort would argue it is really desperately time to stop talking about the problems, right. and it is desperately time to start actually taking the actions that we all agree need to be taken. 
I mean, the, if you go back, and we'll put a link to ASBNB's PNAS paper that we published, we focused only on, we identified those recommendations which were repeatedly agreed upon by previous reports. So it wasn't even like we were we let go of outliers or ideas that only one group had, but we focused on the ideas that several organizations and efforts have had throughout the years. And this National Academies report is just another one of those. And these reports are great, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and we need to start moving from writing papers to actually implementing these changes so that the enterprise uh, can benefit. And so, uh, you know, the career paths can be changed and training can be improved and staff scientists can become part of the mix. And we really need to start actually doing these things and stop talking about them. So we had conversations with uh, NIH leadership regarding the, these recommendations. And even they didn't seem there didn't seem to be uh, any any will or, or motivation to implement these. So how do you recommend we move forward? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think that there's, I think the NIH is, is still absorbing a little bit of what this is. I know uh, Dr. Collins um, and Dr. Lauer published a blog post on, um, you know, how this is the issue of the future of the workforce is one that keeps them up at night, I think is like, was the title of the blog, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, you know, the, <clears throat> you know, the, it's, it, the question is where the rubber meets the road. Um, Groups like ours and other scientific societies out there need to continue to pressure the NIH to start making these changes. We need to pressure Congress to start implementing these things, and we need to start pressuring the research institutions that were that many of us are a part of to begin seriously looking at these problems and addressing them. You know, it's. I think that the easiest thing to do is to maintain the status quo, right? That's the path of least resistance, but that is not necessarily the path that we want to be on. And so it's going to take hard work. It's going to take sacrifice. I mean, this goes back to the NGRI thing. It goes back to the GSI thing. Um, there's going to be some pain that's going to be felt because the status quo is going to have to change in some ways in order to allow the research enterprise to evolve into what it should be. Um, and that may have to be forced. That change may have to be forced. Can our listeners do anything? Can they like? Uh, you could. Um, you you could write to uh, NIH leadership. Um, you can you know uh, you know look at work that Future of Research is doing and rescuing biomedical research and, and read their reports and kind of reach out there. You can talk to your institutions. Um, you can be involved in any way that's possible. You can continue to monitor what we're doing and watch what we're doing, and we will do everything we can to find ways for you to get involved and get engaged. The um, Look, a lot of this ties into that work, the NGRI working group and the draft recommendations that are going to come out of that uh, in next month or in, in July. When, yeah, I think it's July. Whenever, in, over the summer when those recommendations come out. And, and you can be sure to comment strongly and get all of your friends to you know be involved in the process, make sure that your voice is heard. I think that's the best that you can do right now. And I think what we don't want is the NGRI policy. We want something. We don't want a recommendation for what people should do. It should be, as you, as you mentioned, a force. You have to force the community to act. Um, the problem with the NGRI as it's developing now is that it's now a list of recommendations and not a mandatory policy. Without the mandatory policy, there is no teeth to the recommendations. And right. 
you can't write anything if you don't force a movement. Yeah. I mean, I think what we need to start saying is stop coming up with recommendations and start changing. Start right. coming up with changes. Right. And there's a difference between recommending a change and implementing a change. So um, with that, I think we're going to take a pause here. We're going to go to a close after our break. Thank you for listening. This is Pipe Bets and Politics, and we will be right back. Hey, welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. Before we close and we go away for the next two weeks, um, I think what we'd like to do is I just want to ask the listeners, um, you know, our downloaders, our our fans, um, if there are topics that we you would like to hear us talk about, I want to really encourage you to reach out to us. And again, social media is, the, I think, the best way to do it. You can send an email, um, publicaffairs at ASBNB.org. We'll get that, so that's a great way to do it. Or you can interact with us on, on Twitter, at BWCorb. At AM Porter underscore. At DFAM20. Uh, and you saw hashtag Pipettes and Politics. Are there topics that you'd like to see us address and do uh, a deeper dive on? Um, are there people that you'd like us to interview or get involved in the podcast and kind of hear what they have to say? Um, are there issues that you feel have to be addressed that haven't been addressed? Reach out and let us know because really I think that this is a most successful effort if we're telling you what we're thinking and doing, but also if you're helping to direct us on where you'd like us to be spending our time and effort. So do us a favor and do that. Um, and, and with that, you know, uh, spread the word about this podcast. You know, we're trying to. The whole idea of this is to demystify what science policy is, to let you into our conversations and to know what's happening. Um, tell your friends, tell your family, uh, listen in, um, enjoy your uh, the the fact that the school's over for undergrads. Congratulations on graduating, um, and for everyone else, uh, keep working hard. Um, this is Ben, Andre Porter, Daniel Fam. I want to thank you again for listening, and we will catch you next time on Pipettes and Politics.